Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. I know that a lot of times at the upper level of corporations and companies, there is a hope that something will just go away on its own. It almost never does. And the longer you stay quiet, it goes back to the longer that someone else has to fill that space. Right. And so if the media thinks that you're hiding something, the good ones are gonna figure out what that is. So being as transparent as you can, I mean, people make mistakes. Companies are made up of people. Companies make mistakes. Own what you can, give all of the information that you can, even if the information you can give is, we don't know right now, but we're working to get you an answer. Or we can't respond to that at this moment, but we are working to get all of the information that we can, and we will have a statement for you within the next 90 minutes or whatever it may be. Responding at all, even if you're responding that I can't respond right now, is better than saying nothing. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm joined today by not just one of my Fletcher colleagues, but two. It's bonus day. (laughs) As always, we have Fletcher senior strategist, Mary Beth West, who is also my dear friend. And together, Mary Beth and I want to welcome one of our newest members of the Fletcher Marketing PR team, Allison Lester. She joined us last year as director of media relations from a prior award-winning career in broadcast journalism. So Mary Beth, why don't you do the formal introduction? Absolutely. And Kelly, thanks so much. I'm really excited about being with Allison today to have this conversation with her. We are quite happy to have her joining us here on Misinterpreted. And even more so uh, since we get to work with her each day on our team. Allison is a very dynamic leader. She's a communication specialist with 13 years of experience in newsrooms across the country. Most recently, she served as the assistant news director at WBIR-TV Knoxville's NBC affiliate for six years. And she's an award-winning journalist and newsroom manager previously. She had covered throughout her career very big news in her long-lasting news career, including the April 2011 tornado outbreak during her time producing news in Huntsville, Alabama, also the Aurora, Colorado theater shooting while working in Denver, and the Gatlinburg wildfires in 2016. She has also led a team of 62 journalists throughout the COVID-19 pandemic leading up to the time that she joined us here at Fletcher Marketing PR. Focused on research-driven decision-making to recruit audiences and customers, Allison has a proven track record in strategic execution of media projects, and those projects have reached millions of people across television broadcasts and digital platforms. She graduated from Auburn University in 2008 with a bachelor's in communication and psychology. She has won multiple media awards, including the 2017 National Edward R. Murrow Award for the Gatlinburg Wildfire coverage, and also regional Murrow Awards for overall excellence in multiple years from 2016 to 2019. She even won Emmy Awards for breaking news for the wildfire coverage and for coverage of those tornadoes in Alabama. 
More than anything, Allison is passionate about the East Tennessee community. She has devoted time to the school system as a community partner with a local Title I school, and she also volunteers with Leaders for Readers and was awarded a Knoxville Young Professional of the Year Award in 2017 for her very significant community efforts. So in short, Kelly, Allison is just pretty darn awesome. (laughs) And you could not have made a better hire than her in that position. Well, I prefer to call her a badass. (laughs) (laughs) That's allowed too, because, you know, it's your podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So I have to tell the story about how Allison came into my life one day, very unexpectedly. I got a Facebook messenger from Another journalist friend of mine who said, I know somebody who may be looking. Are you hiring? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so that led to a couple conversations with Allison. And actually, I hired her without even having met her in person. was one Saturday and we got on the phone and I was driving from Knoxville to Florida. And we talked for like an hour and a half or two hours. And then she decided to join our team. And it's just been such a pleasure, Allison. So welcome to Misinterpreted. Thanks, guys. I'm excited to be a part of the team and excited to talk on the podcast today. Well, it's, you know, you've been here six months and I've asked you a couple of times, how do you feel about things? And I'm glad we haven't sent you running and screaming for the hills yet because PR (laughs) is not always the easiest career, but neither is broadcast news. So you've done such a great job for our clients and you really have brought interesting perspective. It's not that we haven't hired journalists before, but I think maybe because of your management experience and the way that you had to evaluate news, the worthiness of news and what makes news news really has brought a lot to our agency. So I guess as a first question, I just want to ask you, how do you feel about the overall transition? What's it been like for you going from the rigors of a daily newsroom environment to the rigors of working in a PR firm? Yeah, I think the transition has gone well. Definitely the first several weeks, probably the first couple of months, I definitely felt like I was retraining my brain. I was so used to a 24-7 adrenaline-infused, fast-paced lifestyle managing a newsroom where the buzz of my phone would wake me up in the middle of the night because I was so trained for the inevitability of breaking news happening anytime. And being in a management position, you have to be able to respond and be ready for anything at any time. And so there's always a caveat with your downtime when you work in television news that it's your downtime until. So I think it took me a couple of months to to relax a little bit. Honestly, there were also some changes in the way that PR deadlines and workload are. You know, in TV, your deadline is every day. It's every minute. Every minute that something isn't posted is a minute lost. And so you move incredibly fast at breakneck pace all of the time. And PR is much more about perfecting the work that you're working on and taking the time to make sure that it's perfect. And so I think that the first couple of months, I was 
really trying to work as fast as I was used to working. And it's taken me some time to slow down and pay a little more attention to the detail and take a little more time to finesse the work that I do. But now six months in, I really feel like I'm getting the hang of it. I mean, I know that I still have a lot to learn, but I hope that you guys would agree that I raise my hand a little less these days to say, wait, stop, what does that mean? Um, I, don't under- <laughs> I don't understand that term. Or I think there was a lot of like, okay, how do we do things and why do we do things this way in the beginning. And I'm starting to to really understand that. And now it's more about kind of turning it up a notch. And I feel like I've got my feet under me. And so now it's about kind of taking it to the next level. Yeah, I remember when we were talking and your biggest fear was whether or not you were going to be able to do it. And I was like, what? Like, you're going to be able to do it. <laughs> and then I was worried. I was like, I think you must have had PTSD <laughs> because like, yeah, you're like, yeah. seriously, you don't have to carry your phone with you at seven or eight o'clock at night. Like, if I really need to hunt you down and find you, we will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys have joked. The team has lovingly joked a little bit about kind of peeling back the layers of trauma. And in some ways, I, that's very real. And it's been a very positive life adjustment. But when you do something for 13 years and you're good at it and you know you're good at it and you you receive awards and accolades and feedback from your team above and below you saying you're good at this, it's, it's tough to take a leap to something else that you have no idea if you're going to be any good at, that you have no real experience in. But I think that you could see before even hiring me that the skills really translate well, especially because I worked in media for so long and now working on the other side of media. The 13 years of experience that I had may not have been on the traditional public relations side, but they're 100% on the media relations side. And I think that it's been very nice. Well, let's talk a little bit about that perspective that you have now, having been on the PR side of things, but also looking back a bit when you were in the newsroom. I've always found it interesting throughout my career that, you know, in some of the different PR associations, you know, you have the annual lunch and learn of the media panel that will come in and tell the PR folks kind of how it is and what the pet peeves are that the newsroom often sees coming from the PR side so that we who are working on this end of things can up our game or be more responsive or just work more effectively with media. So that's the crux of my question for you, kicking things off from my standpoint. When you worked on the news side of things, Allison, what were some of those pet peeves about public relations firms or PR pitches that you would receive that you felt really could be fine-tuned and has maybe informed you in how you approach things now that you're working on this side of things? I think one of the biggest ones that stands out that we used to laugh about in newsrooms is PR firms that are so unaware of the timing of the pitch that they're sending and what's happening in the world around them. So I remember after the Gatlinburg wildfires, getting a pitch for some sort of fluffy book release or something. And we all just looked at each other like, really? Did this person not even research what's happening in East Tennessee right now to realize that we have 14 people dead and the fire is still being put out and they think that we're even going to have the time to respond to a pitch about a book release, about something that has nothing to do with this? That stuff happens all the time, especially when you're pitching 
to regions where the PR specialist doesn't actually live. And so it's important to take the extra step to make sure that there's not something huge happening in the market you're pitching to. And it doesn't even have to be a natural disaster, but or a disaster of any kind. But if you're pitching to a television station that is undertaking massive coverage of an event, of a marathon or a large sporting event, and you're pitching them something off topic on the day of that event, it's literally going to be ignored. I mean, most people won't even see the pitch because they're too involved in the other things that they're working on. And that that always kind of irked us. So the timing is everything aspect is everything. <laughs> it is everything. Yeah. And, and it goes beyond just that. But timing of understanding how long it's going to take something to get done or how quickly you need something to get done. So when you're pitching to a local television newsroom, if you pitch something and then aren't able to help the journalist turn it around by deadline, you've missed your opportunity. Whereas if you're pitching something that is happening in several months, that is going to need a lot of build up for, you got to give people the time to get that on their calendar, give them some options for times for interviews and to shoot the B-roll at the right time that, you know, pitching something that's super visual on a rainy day and today's the only opportunity to do it is just as bad as pitching something and then not being able to help the journalist turn it around quickly. And so, you know, there's a, a lack of understanding, it seems sometimes in how long journalists might need to get a story done, but also understanding that the deadlines are really tight and sometimes the story needs to be done and they need someone within a couple of hours. And if you can't provide that, they're going to move on to somebody else. Yeah. Right. And once they do that, then you're not going to be as likely to be called if you can't deliver. So we've always tried to deliver. I mean, I've gone on the air for clients before who couldn't because I was like, we're not giving up this opportunity. And I think you bring up a good point about sensitivity to what's going on in the world and the timeliness of pitches. We, you know, Allison, you and I were on the call with a client this morning and we were discussing the situation in Ukraine and, you know, a piece that we're writing and, you know, how we were going to be sensitive to what's going on over there as it relates to this client's line of business. Absolutely. Yeah. I've learned a lot from you, just how you look at things a little differently because I've never worked in news. So how have you taken those pet peeves that really got on your nerves and you thought maybe made you think less of PR people? And we always fight the, you know, we're, we're fighting a reputational battle all the time that we're just fluffy, you know, punch and cookie party throwers, which we're not. We're business strategists at the end of the day. So how have you taken some of those pet peeves and like flipped them on their head to deliver better pitches and get more media coverage? Because you've gotten a ton of media coverage for the clients that you work on. Well, I think that research is probably at the foundation of all of it. And Beyond researching the outlet that you're pitching to, knowing the right person at the outlet to contact is really important because sometimes we have really great human interest feature stories. And sometimes we have stories that are harder news and are, you know, a little bit edgier and you can't pitch those stories to the same people. And so when we were talking about Ukraine story, Because of my experience, I already had a journalist in mind to reach out to who does military stories, knowing that this is the person that we're going to want to reach out to. We had a great 
feature human interest story about a woman who was involved in the miracle on ice in the Olympics in the 80s. That's a different journalist you're going to want to pitch that story to. Equally deserving stories, but knowing the beats that the reporters cover and what types of stories that they cover goes a long way. It also helps you to not have to pester an entire newsroom with constant pitches because I can pitch one newsroom 10 pitches over a couple of months if I'm very specific and individual about the journalists who I'm pitching to. Whereas if I sent 10 news releases to the same newsroom in that same period of time, they would start just sending my emails immediately to junk. And so, you know, that's been a big part of it. The timing again of knowing what's going on in the newsroom, that Olympics pitch, we knew we got to pitch this to an NBC affiliate because NBC is the one who hosts the Olympics. It's a little thing, but it goes a long way to not pitch. You don't want to pitch a Super Bowl story to the network that isn't carrying the Super Bowl that year. Because of contractual obligations, the networks that aren't carrying the Super Bowl aren't even allowed to say the word Super Bowl. And so they're not going to do a story that isn't going to be on their network. Again, understanding the lead time for some projects. And this has been a little bit of a learning curve for me because the lead times are different for different outlets. So if you're pitching to a local television news station or a local print newspaper or online outlet, a lot of times the turnaround can be very quick on that. Whereas if you're trying to get your client into a magazine, Southern Living, something like that, the lead times are much longer. And so you have to get way ahead of it. So, you know, that's been another thing that we've talked about. And then paying attention to what's going on in the headlines and using what's going on in the headlines to form relevant pitches that there's a peg for. Kelly, you mentioned our conversation this morning about what's going on in Ukraine and how we are talking about that global situation with one of our clients and how it might inform our pitching better. We had a client earlier this year that we knew that a migration report would be coming out about people moving to the state of Tennessee and that we would be able to use that to pitch the client. And so just staying on top of the types of studies that are released, the types of events that are happening, some planned and some not, can help to position your clients to make their stories more newsworthy and more timely. Yeah, I think the big message there is that your pitching can't be tone deaf. And it's easy to make a mistake. Our media database that we use, Meltwater, it's the worst one we've ever used. I will say that every possible time I can. And you wrote a blog post to that. And I wrote a blog post about it if you want to go read all about Meltwater and how horrible they are. So, you know, we have a hard time getting the contacts that we need sometimes in the database, which means we have to go and find them. I remember once I pitched this guy, I think he wrote for food and wine, but then he no longer wrote for them. So he wrote, you know, he sent me back like a really snippy, you know, remove me from your pitch list. I don't even write for them anymore, whatever. And then I saw that he had in his email signature, he had written a book. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to salvage this one. So I was like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I don't think I said old man or dude or anything, but I was like, whatever his name was, I'm so sorry. That was ridiculous. I should have done my homework more, but hey, I clicked on your book and it looks really cool and I just ordered it from Amazon. So I'm going to follow you from now on. So it's a good save. Yeah, yeah, that was a good save. And it's, you have to really 
build these relationships. We have coming up next week, we're calling it an immersive media experience for Smoky Mountain Tourism, our Smoky Mountain Tourism client. We have journalists coming in from all over the country. And so one thing that we've had to do is help them figure out what stories they want to tell and curate their itineraries so that they can cover the things that are relevant to their audiences. And so we help them brainstorm and make suggestions. And as a result of that, we will get more than one story out of each of these outlets. You know, we will get three or four or five. It may be over time, but because we're working with them to curate very specific content ideas, that's what PR is all about. I think it's really misunderstood sometimes what we do and how valuable it can be. Yeah. And I also think that a lot of times people, even having worked in public relations for a long time, unless they have had some kind of exposure to newsrooms, they can have a bit of a myopic view of what a newsroom is. I mean, I think that when many people think about a broadcast newsroom, they only envision the news delivery function that's taking place in front of the cameras. A lot of times they forget that news stations have their own social media apparatus that they're seeking to feed you know, day in, day out, pretty much 24-7. So one of my next questions, Allison, is can you tell us a little bit more about that digital and social media side of things at media outlets? And where do a lot of the coverage opportunities exist beyond the anchor desk, for example, with a television or cable news outlet that a lot of people don't know about or, or that they don't really cognizantly think about? Yeah. So one of the things that I told my newsroom reporters over and over again is that your story will be viewed way more times online than it will ever be viewed at 6 p.m. on the newscast. And that's nothing against the 6 p.m. newscast. It's just the nature of the world that we live in. We are a digital world now. And I started in the industry in 2008 and Facebook was kind of new at the time, just a, just a few years old then. And social media has changed the game for better or worse. But things are going to continue to skew more digitally. I mean, back in the day, newsrooms used to hold a good story for 6 p.m. or 11 p.m. It was like, no, we don't want to, don't put that story on the news until the 6 or 11 because it's a good one. We're going to hold it. There is just no such thing as holding a good story anymore because it's out there. I mean, you get push alerts on your phone the minute that things happen now. And so if you aren't giving the audience something more than the push alert at 6 and 11, there's no reason for people to tune into the newscast at all anymore. Everyone gets their news online and things have become so fragmented that it's not just one website. You can get your information from multiple websites, some reputable, some not. And Social media has also turned individual people into pseudo journalists because you no longer need the backing of a network to have a megaphone. You have a large following on social media and people could see you as a, as a journalist at that point. And so it has really changed the game. It has made the fight for breaking news even more rabid because it's no longer about having the best breaking news coverage at the next newscast, it's about getting the information out as soon as you possibly can. And so the digital realm is definitely where news is now. It's where it will continue to go, I think, in the future. And 
you know, I think most newsrooms are, are definitely aware of that. It also provides lots of opportunity. There's only so much space in a broadcast. You know, they're 30 minute broadcasts with seven minutes worth of commercials. You're talking about 23 minutes, but then you got to take out sports. You got to take out weather. So, okay, maybe you've got a 17 minute news hole and a 30 minute newscast. Well, there's a lot more room and a lot more space on the digital platforms and the social platforms to get your story told. Yeah. And it's citizen journalism, really. We call it citizen journalism because so many times you're getting your tips from the public. And there was always like a number you could call for news tips. Well, now it's just like a, I shot this on my phone and, you know, you're scouring social media for news too. So, but speaking of providing really good content and relevant content, more and more and more, we have to have video to tell our client's story. It's really hard when we don't have B-roll to go with a story or we don't have all the assets that we need. And so just as one example, Allison, you took a lead role on the the past several months helping us with a multi-week, very intense shoot for one of our clients and a European headquartered chemical manufacturing company. And that took a lot of coordination and jumping through hoops and safety rules. And so how has your experience in a newsroom for all these years helped you advise clients on developing proprietary video content and B-roll that we can then turn around and use as a part of our integrated PR efforts? We had a ton of research that just showed that if you have video on a story, you're going to get more engagement. People want it. That's how people consume content. And so it's become not just a, this would be nice. It's necessary to have video. And I think that it has been very helpful, specifically with the project that you're referencing, Kelly, to be able to play the role of bridging the communication and understanding gap between the client and the production team, because there's such a lack of understanding for how much time video takes from planning to post-production, how much equipment it takes, how much access is going to improve the quality. And so I've really been able to help in that role of understanding both what the client wants and needs and is saying, and also understanding what the production team wants and needs and is saying, and being able to help the communication between the two when they sometimes don't speak the same language. Specifically with this case, you're talking about a company that speaks in chemical engineering and a company that speaks in video production, and it's very Mm -hmm. different languages. I don't know that I'm 100% fluent in either, but I know enough about both to help to bridge the gap between (laughs) the two. And I think that it's turned out to be great, but Part of what we do when we're pitching, especially if you're pitching to a a medium online or on broadcast that is a visual medium, is selling the visuals to the outlet of like, this is what's going to make this story visually appealing. And if you don't have that to add, then, then you're missing out on a great opportunity. Well, and one of the things that we do, I think that's so important that maybe is misunderstood when it comes to PR is we try to serve a story up on a silver platter. You know, we try to have the interviews lined up. We try to have the B-roll. We try to have assets. We try to have any graphics that may be needed. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes before it ever comes out in a magazine or a website or broadcast news. 
Right. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about crisis PR. In managing media relations, when a client is under fire as part of an emergency or other negative or unexpected incident, it's just a whole other beast, I think, than just the regulation, media relations activities that we might be doing for a client. So, Allison, you've seen all kinds of crises unfold from your own newsroom days, you know, everything from, I don't know, natural disasters, corporate errors to product recalls and even criminal acts and just everything in between. With all that you've observed on that over the years from the news side, what do you think maybe the top three mistakes are that companies make in their news media response strategy when they are dealing in the wake of a crisis. And by the way, you don't have to limit it to just three if you can think of other common mistakes too. I'm just, you know, anything that really bubbles to the surface. I mean, the top one is time. You know, you mentioned earlier, the newsrooms are 24-7. The world we live in is 24-7. It's fast-paced. You have to be ready to respond because every minute that you're not responding, someone else is filling that with information. And it may not be the information or the message that you want. And so controlling the message and getting out with it quick is the first key. Honestly, it's something that companies should be thinking about before a crisis even happens. I mean, companies all have disaster plans. Media relations should be a part of that. It should be a part of your crisis planning. What's the phone tree? Who's the person who's going to release the statement? If there's a foreseen possible crisis coming that you know is going to get out into the media, having a statement ready to go ahead of time will save you those precious minutes and keep someone else from filling the space. The second is transparency. I know that a lot of times at the upper level of corporations and companies, there is a hope that something will just go away on its own. It almost never does. And the longer you stay quiet, it goes back to the longer that someone else has to fill that space. Right. And so if the media thinks that you're hiding something, the good ones are going to figure out what that is. So being as transparent as you can, I mean, people make mistakes. Companies are made up of people. Companies make mistakes. Own what you can. Give all of the information that you can, even if the information you can give is we don't know right now, but we're working to get you an answer. Yeah. Or we can't respond to that at this moment, but we are working to get all of the information that we can and we will have a statement for you within the next 90 minutes or whatever it may be. Responding at all, even if you're responding that I can't respond right now, is better than saying nothing. Yes. And we tell our clients that people will make up what you don't tell them. So when you say nothing, you're giving them credence to create rumors and spread misinformation. So. Yeah. So, Allison, tell us a little bit more about the behind the scenes environment and what it's like in a modern day newsroom. And what are some of the unseen realities or challenges that news teams face, particularly over the past two years, given the pressure of COVID and the lack of workforce and the pressures in journalism in general? What was that like? It was hard. Journalists are people. And the past two years, has been really awful for a lot of journalists. We have seen a massive, massive exodus from the journalist field of people looking for something else because it is high stress, low pay, the hours are tough, and 
the content is tough. It's like having the stress of being a frontline worker. I mean, you're not actually running into the fire to rescue people, but you're standing right there with a camera. And I, I don't think that even journalists give themselves enough credit for the difficult things that they see on a day-to-day basis. It's always been that way. Watching what's happening in Ukraine right now has been painful for me on, on multiple levels, but watching the journalists who are literally standing on air as air raid sirens are going off in the background, it's hard. It's, it's a very hard profession. COVID has changed everything. Newsrooms across the country went remote. And one of the greatest rewards and things about working in a newsroom is the camaraderie, the collaboration, the editorial meetings are invigorating and it's great conversation amongst people. You become very close with the people that you work with through crises and through breaking news. And when you tear that away and everyone has to work at home by themselves, isolated, and you only see each other on Zoom calls, it's really, really changed the game. And I think it's made the toll harder. Mm -hmm. Also, just this, the fast-paced news happening constantly. I mean, think about everything that's happened in the world over the past couple of years. It's been a lot. There's been almost no break. And there's such a pressure to be first that sometimes that causes mistakes. And one of the big things that we always used to tell the team was we'd rather be right than be first. And so as a reputable news organization, be it national, local, print, broadcast, if you get it wrong, that is detrimental to your reputation. If you get it third, people may not even remember that you weren't first with it. And so being right is so important. But, you know, the workforce is smaller, it's younger, and veteran journalists are leaving to find other things to do because they just can't do it anymore. And that's taking a toll on the people who are left behind, and it's taking a toll on the product. Yeah. And it seems like one of the most important skills in any news gathering environment is leadership because you are managing people and you are trying to keep them rallied toward sort of the central goal and and, and being able to see above or rise above all of these external challenges, especially in a pandemic. I can't even begin to imagine what the day-to-day of that had to have been like in the newsroom environment. But because even if your role is not in managing a bunch of people in a newsroom directly, I think everyone also has to be capable of that independent thinking and asking every question to call out the real stories and service to the public. So it's like everybody in the newsroom has to be a de facto leader, even if they aren't managing people. So I guess my question is, what were your observations, Allison, about the need for leadership in the newsroom and what skills everyone needs in that context? Well, I mean, again, it's 24-7 operation. So if you're one of the folks working the overnight shift, getting the morning show ready, or you're one of the people working the weekend shift, there's no manager there. You have to be the leader on your shift. When you're producing a newscast, you may not be responsible for all 62 journalists in the room, but you're responsible for everyone involved in your newscast. So it does require more leaders. I think that the biggest skill that is most underrepresented in newsroom leadership, though, is empathy. I mean, people are people, journalists are people, and it is such a fast-paced, breakneck, high-pressure industry that a lot of times it felt like that part of it was overlooked. 
And because you need leadership at so many different levels, empowering everyone below you is such an important part of it. I worked for some great ones. I also worked for some really bad ones. And I think I probably learned more from the bad ones that I worked for about the things that I would never do when I was given the opportunity to lead. I hope I stay off your bad list. (laughs) (laughs) So far, so good. (laughs) So that's a good segue into, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. Allison, where do you think the art and science of news gathering is going and where will it be, say, three to five years from now? Are you seeing some big changes on the horizon that are important for PR teams to know and grasp as we continue to help our clients get the publicity that they need and deserve? That's a really tough question. I think that back to media is so fragmented now that there are unconventional or maybe what used to be unconventional media platforms that might actually get you more views and get your brand out there more than just getting on the news would have back in the day. Social influencers, getting out on social media, owning your own social media platform, starting your own blog, starting your own podcast. Those are all mechanisms that might be for some more powerful than, than trying to go to overworked, understaffed newsrooms. Mm -hmm. And one of my predictions is, is not really a sunny one. I think that there will be fewer outlets. There will be fewer television stations in each market that I think that things will become more centralized, more regional. I believe that we will continue to see the decline in the newspaper industry because there's just not enough money to go around anymore because people are finding that there are other ways to advertise rather than 30-second commercials. And, and that's what keeps newsrooms running. Yeah, there's so much just really hyper segmentation. And there are a lot of tools that we use too. paid placement, you know, syndicated content. One of the big benefits of PR is SEO. So, you know, we track backlinks and we look at that and assess, you know, how that is impacting the overall health of the business. So PR just goes so much deeper than pitching a story and and getting an article. I think also, when you offer to produce content for a media outlet that is stressed and doesn't have enough time. And if they realize that you turn in really good copy and it's not too promotional and it's relevant and timely and fits what their audience would be interested in, then there's lots of opportunities for us to, you know, to write the story and get it placed. Right. And you're right. Pay to play is a big thing these days. Sometimes it's worth it. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we really have noticed over the past year, and I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, that you're seeing more and more in major, very prestigious media outlets. If you purchase something, a product from this article, we may receive a commission. And so that is becoming more into play because if your client's not in an affiliate marketing network that offers any kind of commission and somebody else pitches the same outlet, their product is probably going to get selected because that is now a revenue stream for media outlets. And it's that's not going anywhere. I continue to see that. It's a new form of advertorial, really. And I think that's going to continue to grow and we're going to see different things happening with that as well. 
Yeah, and there are a lot of ethics issues that come into play on that as well, not only on the journalism side, but the public relations side, because, you know, anytime you're interjecting a monetary value for coverage, that's technically supposed to be disclosed, you know, on the front end. And it is. And well, and I, I just mean, there's so many different contexts where both media outlets and agencies that they may be working with, it's not always disclosed. And it's just, Well, you know, you're right. There was just the article in, I don't know if it was PR week or about the agency that actually bought a media outlet and pretended like it was a a regular media outlet, but it was all their news. And then they would bash their competitors and people thought that it was, you know, an actual credible media outlet and and they had bought it and hijacked it and were spreading misinformation. I mean, and that's from our own industry. That was, you know, that was an agency. So yeah, I mean, Mary Beth, you were the torchbearer of ethics. And, you know, when we first started doing influencer marketing, the influencers didn't even have to disclose if they were paid or given product. And now there are very strict regulations around that. And then with some of what we've run into with this affiliate marketing network commission, it's there, but it's in the fine print. Like most people don't pay attention to it, nor do they really care, quite frankly, but it is in the very fine print. So, Allison, if you were advising college students interested in a newsroom or other journalism career, what tips or advice would you want to share with them nowadays? You have to want it. I mean, journalism is is a sort of calling the hours are long and hard. I mean, I worked six months on the overnight shift and I'm not talking about like I got off at midnight. I mean, I went into work at midnight. You miss holidays and you you have to cover some really, really tough stuff. It's very rewarding, but look for the right fit. When you go interview at newsrooms, ask the people who work there. Don't just ask the managers if they're happy, if they're actually happy. Because if you find the right fit, and you feel like it's your calling, it's a great career, but it's not for someone who just wants to be on TV. Yeah. And, you know, from a hiring perspective, even if you don't want to be a journalist and you want to go into PR, I see more talent coming out of journalism students than I do out of the communications and PR students. So if you want to be in PR, major in journalism. Yeah. I mean, you you learn invaluable skills. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people now who think they might want to leave journalism, but they still want to tell stories. And I always tell them there are so many careers where you can still be a storyteller and not have to door knock on a crime victim's front door. (laughs) PR is storytelling. There's a lot of things in the communication field that you can still tell people stories without having to work in a newsroom. Yeah. So do you have any last words of wisdom for our listeners, particularly when it comes to media relations? You touched on this earlier, but it's all about relationships. You know, finding a a common thread between yourself and the person that you're trying to pitch to and then respect those relationships. Don't burn them and and don't be annoying. (laughs) You know, be persistent, but don't be annoying. Don't pester people. Understand that everyone only has so many hours in the day. And one of the things that you taught me and empowered me with, Kelly, is if it's not newsworthy, raise your hand and say, this isn't newsworthy and don't waste your email signature on a pitch that's not worth it. No, no, I agree. And I think the media and PR people can work together and, and forge great relationships and, and do great work and really make a difference in the world. I mean, it, 
we do. So well, we're just so happy to have you, Allison. Huge thanks to you, Allison. And listeners, thanks so much for supporting the Misinterpreted PR podcast produced by Kelly's public relations firm, Fletcher Marketing PR. And please follow Allison on LinkedIn and at Twitter handle A Lester TN and follow the firm at Twitter handle at Fletcher PR. You can also follow Kelly at Twitter handle KD Fletcher and me at Mary Beth West. You can also follow our Twitter hashtag misinterpreted, and that's with a capital PR. It's MS interpreted with a capital PR. So for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. And if you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. And if you need a good PR firm and you need some media coverage, we're your go-to. So everyone, thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.